Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome into From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I am live from the Kia Studios in Midtown on a Sunday afternoon, and we are counting down to opening day. We're about to say goodbye to Grapefruit League action for the Atlanta Braves, who have just three more contests left before they will be heading up to Washington and opening the season against the Nationals on Thursday. So if you're not already excited about baseball, well, now's the time you can kind of get excited. If exhibition stuff wasn't your thing, if the World Baseball Classic wasn't your thing, which I don't know why it wouldn't have been if you like good baseball. It was very exciting and was a little bit of fun to be thrown into the month of March. But either way, if you are, in fact, waiting for baseball to come back around, it is now officially right around the corner. As always, welcome to From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley, and you can find me every Sunday on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We'll be moving to the late afternoon, early evening as we get into the season. We've just been bouncing around, if you'll pardon the pun, with March Madness and all of the fun the college basketball world is providing with us. But we'll be back to our normally scheduled time uh, before too long. So make sure you're connected with the show. Follow along on social media. I'll always have the links for you and the news and all the discussion about the Braves and baseball. At Grant McCauley is where you can find me on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram there as well. Like the show on Facebook, and you can find all the links you need for everything else at FromTheDiamond.com, including each and every episode of the show, which, by the way, subscribe. Wherever you get your podcast, just search for From the Diamond there. So let's talk about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves because it was one in which the roster really began to come into focus because not that there were a lot of questions about what the 2023 Braves were going to look like when you just looked up and down the starting lineup. You've looked all around the infield, all around the outfield, behind the plate, the rotation. I mean, there were a couple of question marks that we came in with. I think the biggest one for most folks was shortstop. How is that going to be handled with Dansby Swanson out, with Vaughn Grissom kind of seeming to be at the top of that depth chart of the next man up, which any club, I think, is measured on their depth and their ability to have a next man to come up and do some things. And I think Vaughn Grissom showed us a lot last year. And, you know, it was a decision that the Braves were going to let play out in camp, and that's exactly what happened. And not only were we watching what Vaughn Grissom was doing, which, by the way, he was pretty good this spring, we're also watching what another young player in Braden Shoemake was doing. But in the background, there is a veteran player who was just kind of coming in, getting his work done, and continuing to give the Braves a reason to believe that he can be a contributor to this club. And that, of course, is Orlando Arcia. And since he was named the starting shortstop for the Atlanta Braves, which, spoiler alert, that's the direction they're going to start the season, and we'll dig into that a little bit more as we go along, he has been absolutely on fire, which has to make you feel pretty good about a guy who's basically going to be asked to bat ninth and to hold down the position of shortstop unless or until the Braves decide that they want to maybe reassess what's going on there. Best-case scenario, you get the good play out of Orlando Arcia for as long as he's your starting shortstop. You also allow a couple of players that there are questions about. Let's be honest. You know, Vaughn Grissom, he showed a lot, I think, at the plate. He's got a very good approach, but he's not a finished product just yet. And I think they wanted to continue to get him reps at the shortstop position, which is going to happen with Triple A Gwinnett. Braden Shoemake's going to move on over to second base because the Braves aren't at all concerned about what he can do at shortstop. They know that he can play that position. 
it does help to have somebody who's versatile. And I think Shoemaker has shown that he can be that. And if he can play a little bit of second base, that's the kind of thing, the kind of depth that we talked about and exactly what the Braves needed a year ago. And unfortunately, Shoemaker couldn't be a part of that because he was hurt. And then Vaughn Grissom got called up from Double A. So a lot of these things are, are interconnected. The number one thing you want is health. And the opportunity to have a healthy Ozzy Albies this year, that changes the complexion of the middle of Atlanta's infield. And the departure of Dansby Swanson quite obviously does as well. And when the Braves went out and got Orlando Arcia back in, what, 2021, he had pretty much played his way out of the Brewers' plans just by being a, about a, a replacement level or slightly below replacement level shortstop at the big leagues. He didn't ever really hit the way that he came over to the Atlanta system and began to hit. He made some changes in his swing. And I, you can see just from what he did in spurts last year, particularly against the Washington Nationals, who he absolutely wore out. But you could tell that Orlando Arcia had tapped into more power. I think that the approach that he has gotten, I'm sure, in working with Kevin Seitzer and kind of the Braves way of doing things has improved him offensively as a player. But we're not asking him to carry the offense. If this is a guy that could bat ninth and have 15 to 20 homer power, some run production, and be a passable major league shortstop, that's something that's going to play for the Atlanta Braves because then you flip that lineup over at the top, Ronald Acuna Jr., Matt Olson, Austin Riley, Travis Darno, or Sean Murphy, Ozzie Albies, Michael Harris the second. You have so many great players all around this club, maybe more from Eddie Rosario. Maybe that bounce back from Marcelo Zuna finally happens after a couple of seasons. He's had an okay spring as well. Maybe he's a guy that's going to be trending in the right direction. But either way, if the Braves have all the pieces of that lineup together, the sum of all of that is going to be one of the best offenses in all of baseball and certainly in all of the National League, and they're going to need all of that firepower to win the National League East, which is one of the toughest divisions in all of baseball. And we've been talking about that a lot over the past couple of weeks on the show as we've gone around and, and talked to people that cover each of the National League East squads. Now, I started it off this previous series a little bit, you know, easy with a couple of softballs. We got the Washington Nationals. We got the Miami Marlins, clubs that – clearly are in the process of trying to build a winner. But on this week's show, we are going to ramp that up and talk about the Braves' two biggest rivals, the Philadelphia Phillies, the National League champions, the club that, despite not winning the division, not winning 100 games, took it all the way to the World Series. That's a team that is going to be dangerous this year. We're going to talk to John Kincaid of 97.5, the Fanatic in Philadelphia. You know him. You've heard him in the Atlanta area for a very long time. I was thrilled to catch up with John and talk about the Philadelphia Phillies. Our chat, though, unfortunately, did happen before some big news for the Phillies as they lost Reese Hoskins for the season. We'll touch on that a little bit later with the sh- in the show, but I was really excited to talk to John about a Phillies club that went out, spent some money, and tried to you know retool their bullpen and do some things that will help them be an even better team than they were a year ago, which ended up pretty well for them, and surprisingly so, because they got hot at the right time. And I don't want to bury the lead, but the Braves' biggest rival is the New York Mets. We watched this un- you know, unfurl in front of us, this whole long, crazy saga where the Braves dug themselves one of the biggest holes that a team that comes back to win the division could possibly dig. Double digits around Memorial Day. Ten and a half games back at one point. That's where the Braves found themselves. It looked like the Mets would just be able to play a little bit better than 500 ball, and they were going to hold off the Braves because the numbers just didn't seem to be in Atlanta's favor. But that, as we know, in 2022 was not how things played out. Michael Harris the second came up from double A. Spencer Strider stepped into the rotation. You got Ronald Acuna Jr. back from the injured list. I still think even if he's not what he was you know, prior to that, that his presence in 2022 is an overall net positive. And you had a lot of guys step up and 
you know, help this Braves club to do the things it needed to do to not only catch the Mets, but ultimately beat them head-to-head to win the division. So we're going to talk to Jack Oliver of John Boy Media. He hosts Shea Station, which is a Mets podcast. If you want to kind of see what's going on behind enemy lines, I recommend you subscribe to that. Jack's going to join me later in the show to talk about the New York Mets. And those are, obviously, the two biggest rivals that the Braves have in this division. And we talk about them time and time again here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. The importance of these head-to-head matchups. Well, 2023 is not going to give us as many head-to-head battles between the New York Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies because Major League Baseball has changed the schedule. So now we have this, I believe it's called the, uh, what, the balanced schedule? Maybe it's the unbalanced. I don't know. Either way, they seem to be kind of opposite of one another, but you're not going to have as many divisional games. So you go from 19 head-to-head matchups to 13 head-to-head matchups. So the value of those games, playing other opponents, not having that head-to-head, how much of a difference would it have made for the Braves a year ago if, say, they didn't have that three-game series in late September to sweep the New York Mets and take over the National League East. Those are kind of things that we're going to be watching this year because the schedule is going to be just a little bit different. So I'm excited to talk to both those guys. John Kincaid will join me to talk about the Phillies, and Jack Oliver will join me to talk about the New York Mets. There was some news, though, some Braves news that came out on Sunday morning that I did want to get into as we get the show you know, off and running because we're not going to have quite as much time today, so I want to get into this immediately because – it's one of the storylines we were watching over the course of the spring is how is the back end of the rotation going to look? What's the fifth starter situation going to be? And we got news of uh, some roster moves that were made well in advance of opening day. In fact, what it was uh, nearly two weeks before that with Ian Anderson going to the minors, with Bryce Elder going to the minors. You knew Michael Soroka was behind because of the hamstring deal, but he is now pitching and has made his Grapefruit League debut. That's a huge positive, I think, and Mike will, or Michael will head down to AAA Gwinnett and get himself lined up to hopefully join the Braves, perhaps before April is over. We'll see how all that plays out. Then we got some news from Mark Bowman of MLB.com on Sunday morning that the Braves will not have Kyle Wright to open the season. They were hoping that he would have enough time to ramp himself up, get that pitch count up so he could make his regular season debut in that second series of the year when the Braves are in St. Louis before they come home to face the Padres for the home opener in that first week of April. But Wright, who is healthy, is just going to need more time. So they're going to open the season without him which opens another spot in rotation, which means that not only can Jared Schuster make the club for opening day, but Dylan Dodd can join him not long after that, though the Braves may carry a reliever. Again, Mark Bowman of MLB.com reporting this. Uh, Michael Tonkin may be that arm that could jump into a kind of a back end, well, back end, but a, it, it just an extra you know, break glass in case of emergency kind of reliever on the squad. And you could be looking at both Jared Schuster and Dylan Dodd, who pitched their way into the picture over a postseason hero like Ian Anderson, a rookie who showed a lot in Bryce Elder last year, the comeback story of Michael Soroka, and now with an injury to Kyle Wright, or at least a concern for Kyle Wright that slowed him down in spring training, you could have two rookies making starts in the first six games for the Braves. We're going to talk a lot about that on the show, of course, today. And closer, Rysel Iglesias, he's going to open the season on the injured list. So there's a lot of intrigue around the Braves, but this is why you build the quality depth. And we're going to talk all about the quality depth and so many other things here on this edition of From the Diamond. Again, we're going to do our NLEs previews. We'll get those started when we return here. As I welcome in John Kincaid to the show, I'm excited to talk about the Philadelphia Phillies with him. And then we've got that New York Mets one at the top of the hour. We're going to get into everything we need to know about the 2023 outlook for that club as we look up and down the National League East. And we got some Major League Baseball stories that we're going to talk about on this edition of the show, including the World Baseball Classic closing out, a big-time injury to the Phillies, and as we've talked about so many times with Atlanta, extensions are kind of a way of life down here. Well, I'm not sure that the Phillies and their ace, Aaron Nola, are going to be able to come to terms, and that 
is just one of the many intriguing stories that we're going to get into on this edition of the show. So when we come back, we'll jump into those National League's previews. He is John Kincaid. He is going to join me next right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley, live from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on this fine Sunday afternoon. We are going to turn our attention from the Braves to a National League East rival, and we're going to pick the one that sent the Braves packing last October. It's the Philadelphia Phillies, who are next up on our National League East preview series. The Philadelphia Phillies were the most successful club in the National League East last season. No, they didn't win 101 games, but they made it all the way to the World Series, and that, I'm sure, ignited their fan base. And to help me talk about that is Mr. John Kincaid, a longtime friend of mine. It's been a lot of fun to follow your path, John, back to Philadelphia, and it looks like you landed back up there at a pretty good time in the sporting world. Yeah, it sort of is a a good time, Grant. It's good to see you again. And between the Phillies' amazing October, the Eagles' incredible season, and what they've built, the Sixers are doing great. Yeah. So it's fun being home. But a part of me will always have a great fondness for Atlanta and for the Braves for all the time we spent there. But it is fun being home. Yeah, there's no place like home. I know that's old and cliche and whatnot, but hey, it's sports. We have lots of cliches. Sure. And throw them around Absolutely. all the time. But uh, happy you're able to settle back in there. And obviously, I would imagine you're pretty happy with the season that the Philadelphia Phillies just had. As I looked at this team, they felt a lot like the Braves in 2021. They got hot at the right time. And You take it all the way to the World Series. No, they didn't win it this time, but they've gone into the winter. They've done some reloading. And as you look at this overall division and how this race shaped up and the fact that the Phillies were really the last team standing in the NL East and in the National League in general, what do you feel like made the difference that helped this team kind of flip the switch at the right time? Well, Grant, can I correct you on one thing? Sure. I think that the 2021 Braves got hot for around seven weeks, eight weeks leading into the postseason. Honestly, Philadelphia and their fan base had very little faith that the Phillies were going to go on a run when they snuck into the playoffs as the third wild card. And honestly, that first game against the Cardinals, where they came back in the ninth inning, shut out through eight innings, the magic of that inning when they went out and just pummeled the Cardinals in the ninth, and then they knew they had Aaron Nola coming back the next day, it's like they rode a tsunami of momentum. And it's like they got a monkey off their back. I think that the 2021 Braves were a much better club. The 2022 Phillies got just red hot and sort of finally reached their potential and finally connected with this fan base here. I can tell you, in September, they were not a beloved club. In fact, people were wondering, why are they underachieving? That Mm. this team should be doing better. And it's like everything came together in October led by Bryce Harper, led by Kyle Schwarber, led by JT Real Muto. And there's so much excitement about this year when they went out and got Trey Turner. And more news we'll talk about later on that I got it for you about Bryce Harper that I think really excites the Phillies fan base. So I think the momentum is there. But unlike the 2021 Braves, the Phillies didn't close the deal. So there was no parade. There was no big celebration. So there is a little bit of that chip on the shoulder of, 
got to go close the deal, got to go finish it out. Yeah, nothing like winning the whole thing. I mean, there's no way around that, but a huge step forward for the Philadelphia Phillies, I think, yes. for the experience factor. And I did want to touch on the managerial change because I know that in sports talk and radio and just us in the media in general, we always look at, well, what does a coaching change mean? What does a manager change mean? What can it really do for a club? I think you got to give a lot of credit to Rob Thompson for at least walking in and giving the Phillies a different message after the one from Joe Girardi just seemed to kind of run out of steam there in the first half. He took over the first Friday in June. It was the Friday after Memorial Day weekend. And he literally changed the entire culture of the organization. There was a tension. And I'm not in that clubhouse every night or anything like that. But just going down to batting practice and seeing players and seeing the body language, things were tense under Joe Girardi. The minute that Rob Thompson took over, very much a Brian Snitker type vibe. He listens to his veterans He gets a pulse of the room. Joe Girardi was the boss, old school. Mm -hmm. Rob Thompson, more new school. I'll talk to my veterans. I'll find out what makes people tick. And more importantly, Grant, he made connections. And I know what kind of a guy from all the years I got to know Brian Snitker down at spring training and everything. Snitker had connections with the grounds crew down in Orlando at spring training. He's a man who knows how to connect. Joe Girardi, and a good man. But he did not know how to make those personal connections with people, with media members and otherwise. Rob Thompson came in and just loosened it up. It's like everybody just exhaled and started to play ball. And that's how things worked out nicely. Yeah, and I think that makes a huge difference. I mean, when Brian Snitker took over the Atlanta Braves in May of 2016, they were going nowhere. When the Philadelphia Phillies, maybe to a not quite that extent, were not really going where they wanted to go. They were 22 and 29. Yeah, they were kind of in the same boat the Braves were. So it wasn't just Atlanta finding another gear. And obviously, I'm sure you saw that 10 and a half games back at that point, I think, around Memorial Day and eventually winning the NLEs. But the Phillies... While they weren't able to go win the division and obviously weren't able to finish it off in the postseason, there's a lot to be said for that change doing the organization some good. And with Rob Thompson in place, now the Phillies have gone out and done a little bit of spending as well. So I chat with John Kincaid of 97.5 The Fanatic in Philadelphia. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, at John Kincaid is where you can find him. He joins me here on the com hotline on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. As you looked at this offseason shopping and thought, okay, well, there are a lot of great free agents out here. We just need to get one or two of these. I think a lot of people might have been looking at Aaron Judge and maybe Jacob DeGrom and some of these other names, but the club that ends up with Trey Turner, I felt like, was going to probably be pretty happy with their offseason shopping. 11 years for Trey Turner, one of the richest contracts in the sport now. What's the expectation for him as he comes into a club that, let's face it, doesn't lack star power? He's just coming in to kind of be a big-time reinforcement. I think it's the best lineup. I really do. When you add Trey Turner to that, now that's when Bryce Harper returns. I think it's the best lineup. And the one thing is, is that a lot of these guys, none of them are going to feel pressure to carry the team on their shoulders. There's so much star power in that lineup. You got Real Muto just who delivers at a high level. Mm -hmm. Schwarber is a machine. I mean, there's so much talent. They're going to score a ton of runs, which I think will also take a little pressure off the rotation, which I think now going out and getting Taiwan Walker as the fourth starter or third starter, depending on him and Ranger Suarez, I got to tell you, I think free agency was great for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you get, I think, the best shortstop in the game. Yeah. You and go get Taiwan Walker. You get Soto, now for the bullpen. There's just so many moves that they made where I think Dave Dombrowski looked at the Houston Astros and said, why did we lose? And then said, we need to put less wear and tear on our rotation during the year, have a deeper bullpen, and then just club people with a lot of runs. 
And they're a club that can do a lot of that sure. clubbing. I know you mentioned there's some good news about Bryce Harper that was coming out this week. And I don't so- know if it's good news for you, Grant. <laughs> it's good news for the Phillies. We'll <laughs> leave that caveat in there. It is good news. The Phillies, they're going to decline to put him on the 60-day DL because their expectations are he is ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not putting any caveats on that because it's other people's reporting, but he is ahead of schedule enough that they do not feel the need to rule him out for April and May. The Braves and the Phillies play their first series May 25th. My guess is, since they didn't put him on the IL for those 60 days, they have a good feeling that he'll be able to return before the Phillies ever play a game with the Braves or ever play a game with the Mets. Remember, it's a different game this year, and I'm sure you're talking about it with your listenership. You know, you only get 13 games, 13 with the Braves, 13 with the Mets. So you have to make those count. And it would appear by him not being on the 60-day IL that he will be available for every single game the Phillies play this year against the Braves and the Mets. And to say he's a little bit of a Braves killer at times is true. <laughs> well, you got Bryce Harper, who can be a bit of a Braves killer. You got Trey Turner, who may be the biggest Braves killer of them all. As this rivalry starts to kind of come back into focus, and a playoff series will do that for you most certainly. Braves and the Mets were kind of at a fever pitch of rivalry last year, and for good reason, battling for the top spot in the division. But all of the different things that the Phillies were doing and and adding over the course of the winter, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Mets, the Phillies, and to a lesser extent, the Marlins and Nationals, of course, have watched the Atlanta Braves win this division for each of the last five seasons. And while clubs will tell you, hey, we just need to get into October, give ourselves a chance, the Braves always maintain we want to control our destiny by winning this division. The Mets have spent a lot of money, which may be the understatement of the show. The Phillies also spent a lot of money. Our old friend Craig Kimbrell is also a Philadelphia Philly. Sure, absolutely. So, I'm that, looking forward to seeing Craig. I have not been down to spring training. Yeah. They have four different guys who can close games, Yep. which I like. The one thing is, though, Grant, remember, you're sitting there in Atlanta, and the Braves are the gold standard in the NL East. Mm-hmm. And whether the Phillies beat them in a playoff series last year or not, the Phillies aspire to be the top dog. They don't want to make the playoffs and have to play a two-game series on the road or a two-game series at home just to advance. They want to be like the Braves had last year. And even though it didn't work out, it didn't work out for the Braves last year and it didn't work out for the Dodgers having the time off. And I wonder how that'll play out over the years. I'd still rather have it every time. I'd rather have it. Have the home field, have the time off, and – there's times in baseball, and you've seen it, where the bats get hot and everything goes well and things start to come together. And for the Phillies, they think they've built a lineup and built a starting pitching staff and a bullpen that they can sustain the lulls, that they can win some 2-1 games, some 3-2 games, mm-hmm. but most nights they're going to want to go out and win 5-4, 5-3, 5-2 if they can. And in that ballpark, they might be winning quite a few 7-3, absolutely 8-3 games because they certainly know sure. how to hit. I'm chatting with John Kincaid of 97.5 The Fanatic up in Philadelphia. He joins me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We're talking a little bit about what I think is going to be a three-team race in the National League East. There are fewer head-to-head matchups between these three clubs this year because of the fact that we're going to be playing all 29 other clubs this year, which I think is kind of a cool thing just as a baseball fan. But really, I hate I, no, we're really, thing is, is I hate. really, really. I'm interested yeah, to hear why. Yeah, I well, the one thing is I don't like the um, idea of playing everybody every year. It just is too watered down to me. I don't think the divisions 
matter as much anymore. But I don't. I didn't want to see 19 games with the Marlins. Right. Or there has to be some sort of a balance. Right. Yeah. But I actually would have been much better with there being, and I know they'd never do it, doing a National League and an American League, or maybe having two divisions in each league. And going back to something like that, because I just don't dig it, the unbalanced schedule. Even though we're really going to get an idea this year, uh, much more than in previous years, of how teams match up. I think for the Phillies, the Braves, and the Mets, it's a bonus. Because I think there are more easy games. That's six less games the Phillies have to play the Mets, six less games they have to play the Braves, and they're picking up some of the also-rans of the American League. True. So I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not as interesting to me. I'm not as fired up to see an Oakland A series. No, probably but, not. Or Kansas City Royals or some of these. Right, exactly. It just doesn't yeah. move the needle for me personally. Yeah, I'm interested in how this all plays with expansion because I think that's the thing that they've run into as much as anything. Like, we have interleague play every day now. That didn't used to be the case. Yeah. But when we had 16 teams in one league, 14 teams in the other, they could pair off. And now once they went 15 and 15, they can't pair off anymore. So I think if you get expansion, if you go to divisions of four, so maybe we've got four divisions in each league. You're format, going an NFL model. Is how basically, yeah. And I think Major League now, Baseball would like to go the NFL model of revenue as well, and, and, and adding a couple of new clubs might be a step towards that. I could see that happening because I absolutely believe you're going to see where the Rio is in Vegas. Okay. The Rio Hotel. I think that is where you were going to see a baseball stadium built. Got a lot of connections in Vegas and people I talk to. Mm -hmm. I think that will be the site where they build a baseball stadium. And so you're going to have one pretty much right off the strip. I do believe they will either get the A's or they're going to get an expansion team. Well, let's wrap up here on this because you got the Mets, the Phillies, and the Braves in this National League East division, which is loaded with stars. A lot more of them came in over the offseason, and I think this is always going to be one of the toughest divisions in baseball. Win totals or however you're looking at this, what do you expect out of these three teams, and who do you think is going to be left standing when we get to the end of the 162? And then, more importantly, who's built to win in October the best? Well, I think the Phillies proved last year they're built to win in October, and they're even better. Over 162... Got to tell you, until someone proves to me that the Braves aren't doing it, I think it's going to come down to the Braves and the Phillies in October, uh, in, in September, excuse me, and they play seven games in the last 12 or 14, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. those seven games will decide. I think the last three, which I believe are in Atlanta, will decide. It. Those will be the games that end up deciding whether it's Phillies or Braves. I have the Mets a clear third. A lot of people aren't going to believe that, but I don't like an old rotation ever in baseball. And I believe they've got an old rotation that will have spring oil here, pop a tire here. So in my mind, the Mets may end up being a team that maybe their starters don't have as many innings and they won't run out of gas. Maybe Verlander, who ran out of gas in October. Maybe Scherzer, who ran out of gas in October. Maybe this year... The Mets are the team that sneaks in as a wild card, and they could be more dangerous in October. So who knows? But I believe this is a two-team race for the top between the Braves and the Phillies. And look, the Phillies have to prove it, that they beat the Braves first. But I think they are built to be able to do it 
Whether they do, I'll wait and see in late September. Well, there you go. As Ric Flair would say, to be the man, you got to beat the man. So there's a lot of that going on. He's John Kincaid, 97.5 The Fanatic in Philadelphia. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, at John Kincaid. You know him. You've heard him around the Atlanta parts for decades. And, John, I really appreciate you making the time for me today. Grant, anytime. Look forward to seeing you sometime soon. So that's a look at the Philadelphia Phillies' outlook for the 2023 season. When we come back, we'll take a look around the big leagues and some of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball over the past week. And we'll do it next, right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond. Brought to you by D. Geller & Son. Your diamond source since 1939. Visit dgeller.com and Mark Spain Real Estate. Get a guaranteed offer from Mark Spain Real Estate. 855-299-SOLD. On Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Live from the Kia Studios. On a Sunday afternoon, we're counting down to opening day, folks. It is on Thursday for the Atlanta Braves. They will travel up to Washington to take on the Nationals for three games. They are off on Friday. They're set, you know, just set scheduled in case of rain date. So there is an off day right after you get to opening day, which is just kind of, I guess, a Major League Baseball tradition. And we'll talk about some tweaks and traditions and rules and things in just a moment. But either way, you get that immediate rush of, hey, baseball's back. And now we got a day off. And if you're a baseball person like me, you look forward to those days off, but you don't need one on day two of the season. But I digress. There are reasons for that, and we'll just leave that right there. The Braves will finish up a three-game series with the Nationals on Saturday and Sunday. Then they'll head to St. Louis where they'll face the Cardinals. Then they come on home for a homestand that begins with the San Diego Padres with that home opener not too far away. Got to wait about a week to get the Braves at home, but once they get home, they are immediately going to face one of the best teams, I think, most improved teams over the last few years in all of baseball. That San Diego Padres club rolls in, and with all of baseball in mind, Let's take a look at other things that are going on around the big leagues. As we just heard from John Kincaid, who I appreciate joining me from up in Philadelphia. John, of course, a longtime radio personality here in town, and his Philly roots have brought him home. And as I said, he got back for a World Series trip for the Phillies. The Eagles are doing pretty well for themselves, all of those things. But our focus is baseball. And for the Phillies, their focus is going to be not just winning in 2022. That's a great first step. They didn't win at all. So their goal is going to be to win the World Series, like all 30 teams should be. But how are they going to get that done? And how are they going to keep this window of competition or this this competitive window that they have in this window of contention? I guess that's really the phrase I'm looking for in the same vein that the Atlanta Braves have done. Well, the Phillies have done it a little bit differently. You know, they signed Bryce Harper to a huge contract. You know that they went out, traded for JT Romuto. They gave him a huge contract. You know that they signed Zach Wheeler to a big contract. And then uh, Trey Turner, not too long ago, signed the biggest contract of uh, just about anybody in the sport, as far as shortstops is concerned, 11 years, $300 million for him. So they've got stars. They have you know, power in that lineup. They have improved their pitching staff, all the things we just talked about uh, with John. But they want to keep, I think, the guy who's the ace of their staff around for you know, the next, what, five, six, seven years. And who wouldn't? And, they, and the name of their ace, of course, is Aaron Nola. Now, they've got Zach Wheeler. And we could make a case between the two of them, but I won't bore you with that as far as stats and all those things are concerned. We know both of those guys are incredibly good. The Braves had some trouble with Aaron Nola though, in the postseason, though they have gotten to him a little bit in the regular season. But either way, it doesn't take away from the fact he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. And if you're looking at the metrics from last year, as far as wins above replacement are concerned with our friends over at Fangrass, which is where you'd like to base a lot of your player value and the, the new age of baseball that we're in, nobody was more valuable than Aaron Nola. 6.3 war a year ago. You look across his stats, 11-13 and 13 record may not jump off the page at you, 
but an ERA just over three. He threw 205 innings. He struck out 235 batters. He led the league in strikeouts to walks. He walked just one, just over one batter per nine innings last year. And for a 200-inning pitcher, which, don't get me wrong, 200 innings used to kind of be what you expected out of all your starters. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. And that's something Aaron Nola has been able to give is consistency. That's the third time in his career that he has gone over 200 innings. He had a bit of a step back in 2021, just a, a you know rocky season. Some guys have that. But it doesn't take away from the value that this guy has. And now the Phillies are going to try to determine exactly what that value is. And with uh, the representation for Aaron Nola, they weren't able to come to terms on an extension, which means he's playing out his free agent year and will be set to test free agency after this season is done. Now, as far as that 6-3 war is concerned, it was tops in all of baseball last year, but he is fifth in wins above replacement among all starting pitchers in all of baseball over the last four seasons. That's ahead of guys like Corbin Burns, who's won a Cy Young, ahead of Max Fried, who was last year's Cy Young runner-up, Sandy Alcantara, who won the Cy Young last year, Clayton Kershaw, who's won several Cy Youngs. You get my drift. He's just behind Max Scherzer, his teammate Zach Wheeler, Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom, and Shane Bieber. All of these guys are Cy Young Award and or Hall of Fame candidates. So that should let you know what kind of company Aaron Nola is keeping. So his agent said that the negotiations are going to halt. They're going to resume them after the season as far as a new contract with the Phillies. He said, and I quote, we had good communication with the Phillies. We just couldn't agree at this time. We'll pick up these conversations again at the end of the season. Now, we've heard this story in Atlanta with various players who make it all the way to free agency. I have talked to Alex Anthopoulos about the difference in giving a guy an extension when he's several years away from free agency, as many of the guys that the Braves have signed to extensions are, and say Freddie Freeman or Dansby Swanson, or in this case, coming up in a couple of years, Max Freed. He's going to be in the same kind of position. And I got a chance to chat with Max a little bit down at spring training, and he talked to reporters, and he said, look, I'm not concerned about the arbitration process. I'm not upset about that. I like being in Atlanta. If they approach me, then those are conversations we're going to have. And he just kind of left it there. And you could imagine, two years away from free agency, you can do that. Aaron Nola's in a little bit of a different position, though. Phillies president Dave Dombrowski said this about the negotiations, and I quote, We think the world of Aaron Nola, quality pitcher, quality human being, sometimes you get to the point where you're not able to consummate a deal in which both sides feel comfortable. We're very open-minded to trying to sign him at the end of the season. We're hopeful he'll remain a Philly for a long time. And I would imagine they would be, because as I just pointed out, Aaron Nola is one of the best pitchers in all of baseball, and it's been going on for a while now, and they're going to want to keep him around. So if I tell you that the Phillies want to keep him really, really bad, and that he's one of the best pitchers in baseball, it should let you know there's going to be six, eight, ten teams that are going to be very happy to pick up the phone and call Aaron Nola's representation after the season once free agency begins. So the question, I think, becomes for Aaron Nola, and you know, down the line a little bit for Max Fried, and so I'm trying to tie these two things together, when you hit free agency at about the age of 30, you know, what could your deal look like? And I, I think that the, the basis for this would be something in the neighborhood of what Carlos Rodon got from the New York Yankees. Six years, $162 million for him. I mean, that's, I think that's the ground-level conversation that you're going to be having with Aaron Nola over the course of the offseason. And based on the number of teams that could be interested in him, there could be quite a frenzy. This thing could easily get up over $200 million, even for a pitcher heading into his 30s. But the reason he can command that is good pitching like that, great pitching like that, is extremely hard to find, thus extremely valuable. And when teams have a chance to go out and get one, given how hard it is to develop those, you're going to go out and spend that kind of money, and we've seen clubs do that, the Yankees being a recent example of that with Carlos Rodon. And I mentioned Garrett Cole. I mean, he got $300 million from the Yankees. So there are clubs out there that are going to pay for pitching, and if Aaron Nola is healthy and has another Aaron Nola-type season this year, the Phillies are going to have a lot of competition for his services at the end of the year. Uh, another note about the Phillies, and I mentioned this because uh, I talked to John, John Kincaid a few days ago about the Phillies, and you just heard that interview with John 
uh, here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. And we did not know about Reese Hoskins yet. In fact, I think John was kind of excited to see what is Reese Hoskins going to do in his free agent walk year because it wasn't just Aaron Nola. Reese Hoskins, who has been a pretty good slugger in the middle of the Phillies lineup, he has some ups and downs, peaks and valleys, all those kinds of things. It's a, you know, pardon the, another baseball cliche, a little bit of a feast or famine type of slugger. But when he gets right, as we saw in the National League Division Series, particularly against Spencer Strider, who was not, you know, on his game that day, Reese Hoskins made him pay for it with probably one of the most iconic moments of the Phillies run through October. Now, down here in Atlanta, we don't want to see that thing again. But that home run that he hit off Strider kind of, I think it galvanized the Phillies. I mean, their comeback against the Cardinals was one thing, but the Hoskins home run to kind of put the one of the nails in the coffin for the Braves to go right over the team that just won the World Series last year on your way to a World Series, it made Hoskins kind of a central figure. Bryce Harper is going to be out for at least, we imagine, a month, maybe the first couple months of the season, though he isn't going to be on the 60-day IL. That was a big report that we talked about as well. But you kind of just took Reese Hoskins for granted. Hey, there's this dirty homer hitter. He's going to be somewhere in the middle of this Phillies lineup. It's going to make him more powerful. Well, he tore his ACL this year. He is not going to play in 2023. So not only is Reese Hoskins not going to be available to the Phillies, but unfortunately for him in his free agent walk year, he's going to be dealing with a big-time injury as well. So, you know, our best wishes for a speedy recovery for Reese Hoskins, but there's nothing speedy about ACL injuries and recoveries. We've learned that with Ronald Acuna Jr. last year. He was able to get back, but didn't look like quite the same player. Now, these are very different games. Ronald relies on his legs a lot more than big lumbering first baseman slugger Reese Hoskins does. Still, I think it's just important to point out that, you know, this is going to be something that's going to take him a long time to get over, and clearly it's going to put a big hole in the middle of the Phillies lineup, and we'll see if they're able to maybe go out there and make a move. I saw Luke Voigt uh, opted out of his contract, I believe, with the Milwaukee Brewers since he wasn't going to make the opening day roster. Maybe that's a guy that they look at, and we'll see who exactly is going to get the majority of that playing time for the Philadelphia Phillies. But that wasn't all that was going on. We talked an awful lot about the Phillies on this episode, and justifiably so. Those are a couple of big stories that are going on in the world of baseball, and particularly in the National League East. But uh, there was another little thing that was a big deal in the world of baseball. In fact, they call it that. The World Baseball Classic wrapped up this past week, and I don't mind telling you, and you may well know if I host a show called From the Diamond and have spent 20 years working in baseball, I enjoyed some playoff-caliber baseball being thrown into the month of March as we're getting ready through uh, spring training for the regular season. And I think the viewership numbers would say that a lot of people were enjoying the World Baseball Classic, and it's no hyperbole to say this was probably, since the first one, easily the most star-studded, but it was certainly the most watched and the most hotly contested World Baseball Classic we've ever seen. I think in the six years since the last one that we had, we'd kind of forgotten what the World Baseball Classic maybe is, what it can mean. Is it an exhibition? Is everybody taking it seriously? Yeah. Teams were out there taking it seriously, and we saw that. And it got all the way down to a finals matchup with the USA and Japan for the World Baseball Classic Championship. The USA was the reigning champion from back in 2017. Japan won the first two WBCs, but it had been over a decade since they'd won one of these things. But among the tantalizing things in this matchup was Shohei Otani versus Mike Trout. Mike Trout versus Shohei Otani. And wouldn't you know it, whoever wrote this script, all the way down to the last at-bat of the World Baseball Classic, Managed to get us Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, mano a mano. Otani on the mound, Trout in the right-hand batter's box, goes to a full count. Shohei Otani was throwing pitches that, I, I don't care, you pick, a, pick a hitter out of any decade, any era of all of baseball, good luck hitting that guy. And in fact, that's exactly what we found out about this. I found a couple of tweets this week that I wanted to share just to put some context into how good Shohei Otani was in that at-bat against Mike Trout, who, by the way, has been the best player on the planet for over a decade 
and recently had that challenged by Shohei Otani. I mean, this is like a class of two in terms of the best players in baseball. So to see them go at it, especially since they're teammates, and we're not going to see that too often unless they change teams, which, of course, could happen, but we'll leave that where it is. But I found these tweets. If you aren't impressed with that at bat between Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, you should be. This is from Codify on Twitter. Great follow for stats and insight, uh, so I recommend you do that. Mike Trout has had three swinging strikes in 24 of his 6,174 MLB plate appearances. 24 times in his career that has spanned over a decade as one of the best players in the game. If you're into percentages, I just want to point out, that is under 0.4% of the time that Mike Trout will swing and miss three times in a bat. You just don't strike Mike Trout out swinging on three pitches. It just doesn't happen. In fact, it went to a full count. But the Otani slider and the choice of a slider while he's throwing 101, 102 miles an hour, which, by the way, is also unhittable. I saw this one from Kyle Kishimoto. Shohei Otani's last sweeping slider that struck out Mike Trout broke what we call the 2080 scale in baseball, which is, uh, to make a long story short, the rating that they put on pitches. 80 is the best it can possibly get. 20 means it's about as bad as it can possibly be or just, you know, not very outstanding and not remarkable whatsoever. Uh, So when I was looking at this 2080 scale, Expected ground ball rate for that pitch, 40%. In case you're scoring at home, that's a lot. Expected whiff rate on that pitch, 51%. Expected hard hit rate, 28%. All of those things just tell you that this stuff graded out at an 81 on the 2080 scale. 81 being beyond great. So just make of that what you will. But if you're throwing 100 miles an hour, you're pretty special. You're doing the things that you're doing, and you're Shohei Otani you've got all the eyes of the baseball world on you. And I thought this was really great. This came from MLB Network. I want you to hear what Pedro Martinez, the Hall of Famer, one of the greatest pitchers in our generation and possibly any other, had to say to Shohei Otani, not just for himself, but on behalf of the entire baseball world. Take a listen to this. On behalf of baseball, for all the fans, from all the players, all of us that know baseball, we want to thank you for the effort, for the discipline, for everything you have done for baseball and what you represent to baseball. I just want to personally thank him. Amen to that. For for all you do. All you do. We are really proud and thankful and grateful for what you do. You're a special human being. So we want to thank you and recognize you. I never heard of anything like that. I've never seen anything like that. I just thought that was impressive to have one Hall of Famer telling an all-world baseball player, look, what you just did kind of put everybody on notice, and it shined a bright light on the world of baseball, and to do it in the middle of March. Congratulations, Shohei Otani. That's why a lot of people call you a unicorn. So that was Pedro Martinez on MLB Network. Greg Amsinger was just echoing those sentiments in there as well. Uh, as we wrap up here on the show with our, our trip around the big leagues, as I like to call it, I wanted to throw out one more little thing, and this one's just for fun, and it's going to be pretty quick, but MLB kind of teased the idea of tweaking their rules about the pitch clock. Spoiler alert, they really didn't do that. They're going to go through the season and kind of figure out how it's going to go. But one thing they did say that they have the right to do is to review the performance of bat boys and ball girls to see if they are fielding the ball and and administering all the other duties that they do, mostly anonymously and in the background of everything, to make sure the game's moving as fast as possible. So if you're too slow fielding that foul ball or picking up that bat, or bringing the umpire the new batch of baseballs, and you're a bat boy, you're a ball girl, you've been put on notice by MLB, potentially. Wake me up when they start putting some of these bad umpires on notice. That's what I want to see. 
That'll wrap things up on this particular conversation. We'll put a bow on it with that. But when we come back, we're going to jump back into our National League East preview. We're going to talk about the New York Mets. It's the Braves, the Mets, the Mets, and the Braves. We saw it all in 2022. I expect to see it again in 2023. We're going to have Jack Oliver of John Boy Media join me next. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with me for Braves and Baseball Talk. And now we're going to mix those two things because it's not just the Braves that we talk about in the National League East. It is all five of these clubs. And we got this preview series going, and we've got a big one here on today's show. Perhaps the biggest foe that the Braves had in 2022, no question. And maybe the biggest foe they're going to have for the rest of this decade. At least that's how these two clubs are lining things up. I speak, of course, of the New York Mets. I'm joined by Jack Oliver of John Boy Media. He's the co-host of Shea Station. It's a Mets podcast. You can get it wherever you find your podcasts. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Jolly underscore Olive. Jack, really appreciate the time. And looking forward to diving into what is, I think, one of the most hotly contested rivalries, I think, in all of baseball. Yeah, Grant, I appreciate you having me. I'm always down for a discussion with Braves fans when things can stay civil and not too hot-headed. Because last year, things got really heated, especially down the stretch. Obviously, your Braves got the best of my Mets. But like you said, man, the next decade is looking like the Braves and Mets and maybe sprinkle in a little bit of Phillies yeah. uh, constantly you know, trying to take control of that NL East. It should be very interesting. So let's dive in here because this winter was a whirlwind of signings for the New York Mets and Steve Cohen's club. And I don't know that any team was more front and center when it came to spending big money over the offseason than the Mets. And while the Carlos Correa saga had more chapters than any of us could have expected, how well do you feel like the Mets did top to bottom in reloading this squad for 2023 and the not-too-distant future as well? Uh, you know, it's really interesting because the Mets were in such a tough position that I don't think a lot of fans would have been surprised if the Mets opted for sort of a, a retooling kind of thing. There were so many guys that were ready to be out the door in terms of Brandon Nimmo and Edwin Diaz, Jacob deGrom. All of those guys had to get locked up one way or another. That's just the top three of the Mets' pre class. And the only real way to answer and try and repeat as an 100-win caliber team was to go out there and spend the money the Mets did. You know, they had an option to kind of trust a lot of the kids that were getting closer to Major League ready or give them that extra year by supplementing the roster with Major League talent. And that's the route they took. I think they did a really good job. You know, they got a great annual value price of Brandon Nimmo. The Edwin Diaz deal is something that I liked, obviously, until the recent news. You got Justin Verlander to take that spot. And the Mets now are afforded the opportunity with the addition of Omar Nervais to give Francisco Alvarez a little bit more time, learn the catcher position a little bit better. Uh, it's going to be a very different team. Obviously, there's a lot of new faces around. Uh, and I think the Carlos Correa saga kind of put a little bit of a damper on all of it because it happened at the very end. But overall, the Mets had a fantastic offseason, and they put themselves in prime position to try and take the division again. Yeah, and I would agree with all of that, obviously. And the Correa thing notwithstanding, I thought the Mets did a really interesting job of kind of walking this line that you just pointed out of, yeah, they did spend a lot of money, but they didn't overburden themselves by trying to go out and, and sign a bunch of players that could have their contracts turn into an albatross. And really, if you needed to reload, you were able to find a piece that could, you know, go into where perhaps another departure was. And I don't think there was a bigger departure for the New York Mets than that of Jacob deGrom, because it does leave a void in rotation. And it's very difficult to fill a the void in a rotation that is a Hall of Famer. But I guess if you have one, you might as well go out and sign another Hall of Famer. And that's what they did. 
They went out and got <laughs> Justin Verlander. He looked great last year. He was back from Tommy John. He didn't seem to have any limitations whatsoever. Uh, as you size up this shift from DeGrom to Verlander, uh, how, do you, how do you handicap it? I mean, do you feel like this was the right move for them if they weren't going to be able to retain a guy who many of us would refer to as the best pitcher on the planet when healthy? You know, the only other real answer I could think of was Carlos Rodon, and that was sort of a, a wild card. You know, the Yankees got him for a five-year deal. He's dealing with some injury stuff as well. He doesn't have that proven track record that Verlander and DeGrom both have. With the Mets rotation, it's all kind of a wild card. I mean, it was kind of the face of the team going into last year of DeGrom, Bassett, and Scherzer, and we only really got two months of those guys all together and healthy, and it didn't work out in the end. You know, we had all three of them for that wild card series, and we ended up not winning. This year, there's a completely retooled rotation. Scherzer's the only real returning member, and Cookie Carrasco, of course. Then you've added Verlander, Kodai Senga, and Jose Quintana, who's going to be out for three months as well. So it's kind of a, what can you get out of these guys? Are you going to get another 180 innings out of Justin Verlander? Is that 40-year-old arm going to be able to hold up? Can Max Scherzer stay healthy and condition his body for the whole season? What is Kodai Senga going to look like? Will his yep. stuff translate as well as the Mets wanted to? I think the upside is there, but there is pretty much question marks with all five of those guys that are slotted to be the one through five of the rotation. The Mets have provided themselves with depth, but depth can only get you so far. They're going to need those top-end guys to perform. Yeah, we're chatting with Jack Oliver of John Boy Media, co-host of Shea Station, a Mets podcast. And also, you can find him on Twitter at Jolly underscore Olive. He's with me here on the WaitFor.com hotline on Sports Radio 92.9, the game here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Now, with all of that resetting out of the way, the Mets were resetting their rotation. And Kodai Singa, you brought up his name. I think he's going to be a very interesting, I don't want to call him a wild card because the talent's certainly there, but I guess there are some questions that do come with him as well as far as health is concerned. A little bit of a finger issue that he's dealing with over the course of the spring. I, I read that Buck Showalter said he wouldn't expect it to be something that would sideline him in the regular season. But the contract structure also kind of underscored maybe some concerns about how he's going to, A, be able to assimilate to Major League Baseball. And if there is a lot of mileage on that arm from Japan, kind of protecting the Mets from a huge, huge contract, though five years and $75 million is not a small contract either. I guess all of that, you know, kind of being said, how excited are you to see what he looks like against major league lineups? Oh, I'm extremely excited. I mean, I made a YouTube video kind of sizing up Kodai Senga and what he could look like in the major leagues, not really expecting him to go to the Mets. This was before he signed. And the Mets, I have to believe, were the highest bidder by far at five years, 75 million. Kodai Senga is a very interesting case. His key pitch is the fork ball, which has a split finger grip. And for those who don't know, uh, baseballs in Japan are smaller than the baseballs mm. in Major League. So I have to believe that that finger injury was probably Kodai getting used to a new grip and a new baseball altogether. It might be something else. That's just speculation on my end. But I don't foresee it being a, a larger issue because Kodai Senga has two other great pitches in addition to a fastball that can touch 102 at its absolute best. So Kodai Senga's stuff is going to be there. It's just how will he adjust to a new rotation timeline? Pitchers in Japan only throw once a week, and they throw much more in a game than a major league pitcher. So it's a lot of adjustment, and the first year can kind of be telling of that. But the Mets do have him locked up for the next five years with some incentive options if he does end up doing well, or he could opt out of the third year of this contract. So Kodai Senga has all the opportunity in the world at just 30 years old and being the youngest member of this Mets rotation. He's going to be one of the most interesting players to watch out for on this Mets team. Not only is he highly talented, but highly motivated as well, if you needed any of that, to come over and get himself acclimated to the major leagues and have a chance to maybe dabble back into free agency and see if he can't get a bigger deal for himself. But you got to be healthy to do all of those things. And Kodai Singa, it would appear, looks like he's trending in the right direction for opening day, even if there 
there have been a couple of questions here in the spring. Now, as you look at having Senga in the staff, you got Verlander, you got Jose Quintana, who will be absent for quite a while. Joining along with Max Scherzer, you got Carlos Carrasco, David Peterson, Tyler McGill. Do you feel like the depth is there to help out with not only Senga maybe getting used to pitching every fifth day, but also some of the injuries, Quintana in particular, and some of the things that maybe cropped up last year that kept the Mets from really feeling like their rotation was full strength the way that they had penciled it in when opening day came around? Yeah, I think uh, what separates the Mets from prior years of this team is the depth. It's what good teams do. They prepare for the worst-case situation by surrounding their minor league system and even their bullpen with major league quality depth. And the Mets have done that in guys like Peterson and McGill. Joey Lucchese was a trade they made in 2021. Elisa Hernandez was a trade they made last offseason. These are guys that have thrown sizable amounts of major league innings and can go out there and give you five quality innings on a good day. And the Mets have the high-end talent to kind of back the or stand in front of those guys rather. And they've done so with the bullpen too. They have a lot of guys that are having great springs right now that could crack the roster. Tommy Hunter is a name that comes to mind. Jimmy Yacobonis is another guy from the Marlins system that the Mets picked up. They're getting a good read on a lot of minor league talent that has that upside. You know, they're looking at guys with great sweeping sliders. They've learned from Adam Adovino and how good his season was last year. They're trying to get guys that fit that profile. This is what good teams do. I mean, not always will they have the best talent overall of any major league team you have teams like the astros i still believe will be in front of the mets this coming season but you give yourself a chance in a long 162 game season when you surround yourself with so much talent on the depth chart of this roster now the mets lineup is still kind of missing that big power back carlos correa probably would have been the answer to that but in terms of where the roster sits in terms of putting major league quality guys out on the field every day of this long season. I think the Mets have put themselves in a great position. No, they certainly have. They had a lot of good guys returning. That was a big part of the core that helped them win over 100 games last year. And I'm sure that's the expectation again this year. And as we know, when you go throughout the course of the season, every year is going to kind of tell its own story. And I wouldn't imagine that the Mets would limit themselves from maybe adding and making some additions come the trade deadline or maybe even before if they feel like that's what they need to do to go out and compete in an ultra-competitive division with a team like the Braves, teams like the Phillies, and I don't know, I think the Marlins might even be a little bit better this year. Can't quite say the same thing for the Nationals, but either way, it's going to be a hotly contested (laughs) division, as we've talked about. Now, as you looked at the slew of other signings, you touched on a lot of these bullpen pieces, a catching upgrade, uh, some more rotational reinforcements we just discussed. In all of this wheeling and dealing, the Mets made a very big deal to keep their closer in town, lock him up for five years, $102 million, but now as we've all seen, and unfortunately kind of, I would say, the low light of the World Baseball Classic. Edwin Diaz tearing up his knee. He's out for the 2023 season. What's the plan to cover those innings? Because I can't imagine it's an easy answer for how do you replace the best reliever in baseball? Yeah, you know, it's something me and Jerry talked a lot about on our own show, about how when the Mets first signed Diaz, it was a great move because there was no Edwin Diaz replica out there that you could go get. It's kind of him and Emmanuel Classe at the top end of relievers right now. And you just lost them for the whole year. The Mets have built themselves a good bullpen. They added David Robertson on a nice one-year deal. He was close to the World Series games last year. The guy can do it. Adam Adovino comes back after a great year in his career at 37 years old. They trade for Brooks Raley. They supplemented the bullpen very, very well. But it's sort of the thing where if you cut off the head of the monster, the monster kind of flails around and is not as intimidating. And that's sort of what Edwin Diaz represents in my mind. The Mets can make up those innings with the guys that they've added through depth and quality signings. But no one is going to have the same effect that Edwin Diaz would have had as he did last year. When you got to the ninth inning of the game, and the Mets fans kind of relieved. You know, they thought to themselves, okay, the game's over. Edwin Diaz is coming in. And also, you lose the entertainment value for the Mets because, you know, the trumpets were 
a national spectacle that transcended baseball itself. It went into pop culture and, you know, spread around that way. And that was sort of an attraction for the Mets. It's going to be a whole year without the trumpets. So I think you lose sort of, you know, that allure as well. But in terms of the quality of the major league bullpen itself, I think the Mets still have a solid bullpen. It's just how good can your bullpen be without a dominant ninth inning guy back there? Uh, now, another thing we talk about a lot down here in Atlanta is extensions for young players who came up through the organization. Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil signed extensions over the winter. You add them to the extension that was given to Francisco Lindor following his trade over. That's a guy that you want to keep around. He had his best season in a Mets uniform last year, but it kind of brings me to the question, as you put together a good core like that, uh, do you see Pete Alonso joining that group sooner than later? I think you have to, right? I mean, can you really go out there and find a guy that can give you 40 home runs every season and plays every game like Pete Alonso does? I don't know. I know first base is kind of an easier position to fill when you look at the grand scope of baseball positions. But Pete Alonso, one, loves being a Met. You know, as goofy and corny as he can be sometimes, he's a great ball player. And the Mets haven't had this kind of power pretty much, you know, for the entirety of their franchise history. You know, there's not many 40 home run hitters in Mets history altogether. Pete Alonso is already, I believe, number eight on the all-time Mets home run list. Even if he doesn't get extended, by the time his service time runs out, he might be the Mets home run king for all we know. So I think that's definitely on the list of Cohen's, you know, priorities. And I think the Jeff McNeil extension was really smart for both sides. You may be surprised at the cost, but you buy out those arbitration years. Jeff would have been 33 when he hit free agency. It made a lot of sense. And for Pete Alonso, I think it makes a lot of sense here. The Mets are really dry of power if Pete Alonso is not in that lineup. They have guys that can hit the ball at the ballpark, but not with the frequency that Pete Alonso can do. He is essential to this Mets lineup. And he's really the last piece of the core that doesn't have that lock on it right now. So I think it's something that's going to be on the mind of Mets ownership throughout this entire season. And the longer you wait, the longer, the higher the price might go, because as far as I'm concerned, Pete Alonso isn't stopping anytime soon. No, he doesn't look like he's showing any signs of slowing down. And as you mentioned, 40, maybe even 50 home run power, that's going to be hard to replace. And as it does get closer to free agency, that's another thing we talked about here down in Atlanta. It's not necessarily going to be a foregone conclusion. You can get that extension done before that player does hit free agency and everything can change, as we've seen quite a bit. Wrapping up here with Jack Oliver of John Boy Media, host of Shea Station, a Mets podcast. Make sure you check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, as we look forward to another NL East battle, and I think we are looking forward to it, Mets and Braves won 101 games last year. But it was the Phillies who went to the World Series. So as we look at all of that, how much pressure do you think is on a team like the Mets who have spent as they have, who have won the way that they did in 2022, to really be able to get this thing across the finish line and go deep into October this year? You know, it's an interesting question because we mentioned before that the Mets are capable of being a 100-win team again. But as far as I'm concerned, they just need to get back to the dance. Wherever they might land, whether they win the division or they're the last wildcard team, you got to get back to October and you got to put up a better fight than you did last time. Listen, if the team goes out there and wins 88 games and is the sixth seed, but goes out in October and has a really great showing and shows that they're a team capable of winning in October, I'll be impressed because, you know, I think last year it was a lot of first time playoffs for a lot of those guys. And it certainly looked it by their play on the field. This year, you can completely rewrite the narrative and change the story of the Mets so far in the Cohen era by going out there, winning a postseason series, going further than people expect you to, because now you have this sort of reputation surrounding you uh, with, you know, stalling out at the end of the season. So I think that's going to be on their minds for a while. But again, it's a long season. The Mets have built themselves to win 162 games, you know, put up a good record in that facet with all the talent they brought in. It's just, can you stick the landing at the end? And I'm really interested because you bring in, you know, a veteran presence in Justin Verlander who just pitched and won a World Series game and won the World Series with the Astros twice. 
maybe that's the X factor the Mets need. I don't know, but I think it's going to be an interesting question to answer. It certainly will be. And you have some guys in that clubhouse that have been to the big stage who have won it all. And I think that as you build that culture and look to change things in the most positive way, that having those guys around certainly can't hurt, in addition to them being very talented to help you get through the 162. Jack Oliver of John Boy Media, appreciate all of your time. Looking forward to what should be another exciting summer in New York and Atlanta, maybe in Philadelphia. We'll see how that all works out. But either way, I uh, appreciate the time and look forward to maybe chatting with you again throughout the course of the season. Thanks for having me, Grant. It was a pleasure. Well, that was a look at the New York Mets. When we come back, we'll chat a little bit more about what's going on for the Atlanta Braves as they wind down spring training here in 2023 and march towards opening day. That's coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Well, wrapping things up here on this edition of From the Diamond, taking you up to the half hour here today. Before we get back into the basketball action on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, this is From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley, and we've got some Braves to talk about as they are wrapping up their Grapefruit League slate, and we are looking at a roster that is really starting to come into focus. And we've talked a lot on this show, at the top of the show anyway, about what the Braves have going on in the rotation and the fact that it's going to be Kyle Wright beginning the season on the injured list. You already knew there was a hole at the fifth spot. That's why Dylan Dodd and Jared Schuster were competing to get that spot, and all of the storylines that led into that with having the names that you knew, the names that you thought might be the Braves' fifth starters, the Ian Andersons, the Bryce Elders, the Michael Sorokas of the world, well, they're all going to be beginning the season in the minor leagues for one reason or another as well. And now you can put Kyle Wright on that list as he's going to get some minor league work as just ramping up, getting his pitch count to where it needs to be before he's going to rejoin the major league rotation. And I thought Wright's comments about that really showed that he has a pretty good grasp of why exactly the Braves would make this move. And it's because... It's a long season. There's no reason to rush this guy back into things. And so he said, and this is courtesy of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Justin Toscano, who does such a great job of covering the Braves uh, throughout the course of the season. Wright said he's happy where he's at, but he thinks a little bit more time makes more sense. We want to finish strong, not just trying to be a hero in the first month. It's a good call. I would agree with that. As much as the games in April, the wins and losses, well, they count as much as the ones down the stretch. You also want to make sure that you are built to sustain the injuries and the inconsistencies and all the things that 162 games is going to throw at you. No reason to go out there and play hero in the first couple of weeks for Kyle Wright because he's going to be an integral part, an important piece of this Braves rotation. But as we know, it's not just Kyle Wright that we've been talking about with this fifth starter thing that I just mentioned. You know, we saw with Wright landing on the IL that it opened up that door for both Dylan Dodd and Jared Schuster, and by the way, not in that order, to make the Braves rotation. You know, Dodd is a non-roster invite to spring training, so if you're wondering what do the Braves have to do to maneuver their roster with Wright and adding Dylan Dodd and who has to go off of the roster, well, you're going to figure out all those moves, but they're not going to do it prior to opening day. Dodd is going to start against St. Louis, while Schuster is going to start, it looks like, the finale against the Washington Nationals with the way the Braves' rotation is going to line up. So Max Fried starts on opening day. That's March 30th. That's Thursday. Uh, closer by the day. Spencer Strider on April 1st. That's Saturday. Then Jared Schuster on Sunday against Washington. That wraps up that series. Charlie Morton will come back on April the 3rd and pitch against St. Louis. That's on the Monday. Then Dylan Dodd is set for April 4th. That's a Tuesday in St. Louis where he will face the Cardinals in his major league debut. Then Max Fried comes back to wrap up that series. Then that home opener, April 6th, San Diego Padres in town, and he got Spencer Strider on the mound for that. That's how the Braves rotation looks. And we'll see what this means for Kyle Wright and his timing because he is going to face some minor league hitters, I believe. That's the plan and then go out and get at least one start with the Gwinnett Stripers before rejoining the Atlanta rotation. But within the first couple of the weeks of the, uh, weeks of the season, you should see Kyle Wright rejoining that rotation. And 
Had he been able to debut maybe just five or six days prior to when he did, he's just so far behind. You've got to be able to get your pitch count up. He only threw 57 pitches in his most recent Grapefruit League outing, so it makes a lot of sense to try to get him up to 75, 80, 85 pitches before you're going to ask him to go out and compete against major league lineups, not in exhibition play either. I mean, the whole major league lineup is going to be out there, and all those games count, of course, so Kyle Wright's going to do that. But that is what the Braves' rotation looks like, at least here in the early part of the season, and just such great stories for Dylan Dodd and for uh, for Jared Schuster, both of these highly regarded prospects, and both of them getting the news that, hey, you're going to start in the first week of the season. That's something every young player wants to hear, is that they're going to be on that major league roster for that first time. So congratulations to both of those men. It seems like their major league dream is going to be coming true in the not-too-distant future. The other great story, of course, this spring is for a more of a proven player in Orlando Arcia, earning that starting shortstop job. Again, I don't think this is a service time thing for Vaughn Grissom or for Braden Shoemake. They simply need to get a little bit more work. Grissom with the glove, Shoemake with the bat, and I would expect the Braves to revisit at some point their shortstop situation this season. So the Braves, as they wrap up their Grapefruit League slate, they will play the Pittsburgh Pirates on Sunday, Red Sox on Monday and Tuesday, off day on Wednesday, and then they've got opening day. It's happening at 1.05 p.m. Eastern time. It's Max Fried, your opening day starter for the Braves for the third consecutive year. He'll be facing Patrick Corbin of the Washington Nationals as the regular season begins and the march towards October for the Atlanta Braves will begin in earnest as well. That'll wrap things up here on this edition of From the Diamond. I want to thank my producer, Max, for all the good work today. I want to thank you out there for listening to From the Diamond. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you're following us along here every single Sunday right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.